So tonight I plan to give a talk, Lessons from Nature. And then through the course of the day, realizing that so many people will be leaving soon, I am adapting it somewhat to be Lessons from Life. The original intent in giving the talk, Lessons from Nature, is so that we can learn to look at the world, see the world, feel a part of the world, not separate from the world, and be at peace and at ease with the way things are. The Buddha talked about practicing mindfulness internally and practicing mindfulness externally. When we look at the natural world, there is a way in which we can see the lawfulness of life. We can see the way things unfold according to natural laws. And we can see into the truth of impermanence, that all things are constantly changing, in flux, we can see that there's nothing within this that can be held onto. We can see into the truth of suffering, how that um, having a body alone, it is subject to uh, conditions that are not pleasurable, and that this is impersonal in its nature. There is a lot we can see in the external world, which when we pay attention, when we allow the mind to be open and receptive, we can see how these same laws that govern the world in the exterior world are the same laws that apply to this body-mind process. When we can apply these laws, understand the way of these laws, we find that the stress diminishes in our lives, that we are no longer trying to do things that are impossible. So often in our lives we try to hold on to circumstances, we want things to last, we don't want to experience that which is unpleasant. And by seeing in nature that this is the way of things, it can help us to take the experience we have less personally. It can help us to see that our life is unfolding according to natural laws.
as a human being, we have the capacity to not just be a part of the nature of things, but to truly understand the nature of things. And this is where we can uh, find freedom, where we don't have to be so entangled and caught up in identifying with our experience in a way that brings pain. So the natural world is a way in which we can witness the way of things. And then through our intellect, we make a bridge between external appearances and our heart's understanding. We learn to apply these same laws inwardly. In the Thai language, the word that gets translated as nature literally means entering into the Dhamma, entering into the way of things. And so tonight's talk is to help us understand how we can be supported by the natural world, how we are part of it, how this can lead to a deepening understanding and wisdom in the way we live life, and that all of life carries these lessons for us. You know, giving this talk tonight, it's not to say that you have to go out and practice in nature, but these same laws that apply in nature are the same laws we will encounter throughout everything that happens in our lives, and that we can use whatever happens in life as a way to wake up. And in using nature tonight, I'm not wanting to trigger a romantic vision of nature. Because nature can be a very hard taskmaster. Its lessons can be fierce, demanding. We find that the sentimental relationship with nature really is only uh, sustainable so long as we sit inside a building, so long as the building is heated, we have glazed windows, that the world of nature itself, once we step out into it, we will have quite different lessons. You know, that stepping out into the cold, the changing conditions, the changing weather, uh, even in New England where the woods are not so fierce as a jungle might be, where um, the most dangerous aspect that we might encounter might be the lime tick, which can be very dangerous, can be life-threatening. But that there is aspects that can still be very unpleasant and challenge us, challenge the mind. You know, if you've had an encounter around here with poison ivy and the rash that comes from it, or if you've ever practiced outside during black fly season here, 
you know it's not easy. So when we step out into, ni- into nature, we actually step into the stream of life. And I'd like to share a poem by Wendell Berry. It's called The, the Vacation. I think it has a poignant message. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river, upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly toward the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it, preserving it forever. The river, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat, behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation even as he was having it, so that after he had had it, he would still have it. He would, it would be there. With the flick of a switch, there it would be, but he would not be in it. He would never be in it. It would be sad if we got to the end of our life and realized we had never been in our lives. It would be sad if we got to the end of our retreat and realized we had never been in our retreat. So as well as stepping into nature, it's stepping into life so that life can teach us, whether we're in retreat, out of retreat. And it really just demands of us that we open our eyes, that we look, that we see, that we hear, that we let ourselves be touched by life, not in a way that embellishes it, not in a way that revels in it, but in a way that we bring awareness, that we bring presence. Because when we do this, understanding comes, wisdom dawns. So looking to some of the lessons from nature. Nature can be a great support to us. Buddha found this support. The Buddha was born under a sal tree. Once he left home, he practiced in the wild. He became enlightened under the Bodhi tree. And then he continued to live in the wilds. And he died under a tree. He once said, I resort to the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. I find great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to the forest. 
I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. There are these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. It is said in the commentaries that what the Buddha meant when he said, I have compassion for future generations, was that later generations, in seeing that the Buddha resorted to forest dwellings, people would want to follow his example and thus hasten their progress towards making an end of suffering. So whether it's been nature, as we've practiced here, providing us support, it's to find in life that which will support us, that which will nourish us, that which will help to strengthen awareness, presence, mindfulness, so that we can recognize the way out of suffering. For each of us in our lives, it will be different how we find the support. Some of us may live in the natural world, out in the country, in places that are quiet, that provide this solitude. For some of us, it may be that we live in the midst of a city, finding conditions around us that will support us. You know, it may be to take walks in a park. It may be to practice in our backyard or our balcony. It may be needing to find friends who will support us. You know, it can be difficult when we've done this practice amongst people whom understand what we are doing to then enter out into the larger world where maybe not so many people understand. And so needing to recognize that we are just like a garden that needs certain conditions. You know, right now it's spring. And if we're planting a garden, there's a lot of work to do. We have to dig the garden. We have to put fertilizer in the garden. Plant the seeds when the conditions are right. Water the garden. Hopefully the sun will shine. We are just like the garden. We need these conditions. So watching if we have the expectation within ourselves that we can leave and not give our garden support. Instead, looking to how you can support the work that you have been doing here. We find that nature, as well as giving us support, gets us in in touch with the quality of solitude. Being on retreat here 
we touch into this solitude. Being on retreat, we find that we can let go of the stories of our life and be very simply in the present moment. We find this too when we are out in nature. We find that the natural world really doesn't care about our stories. Now the squirrels, they're not so interested. The bugs, hmm, maybe they're interested in what we had for lunch. I think if we have sugar in our system, we're a little bit more tasty. But really, you know, the natural world isn't so caught up in the stories of our lives. And when we aren't so caught up in the story of our life, we get in touch with a quality of joy, a quality of simplicity. We find that we don't have to live in comparison with others. And this is really the gift of solitude, that we can find a happiness, a contentment, that isn't relying on others, where we are okay with how we are, who we are, and we aren't constantly comparing and evaluating. We learn how to be at home with ourselves. Solitude itself provokes presence. That capacity to stand fully in the present moment. We can learn it from the natural world. Just around here, there is in the back some places where there is groves of old trees going and standing amongst them. It's a way of standing in the presence of elders. We find as we stand out in nature that there can also be moments where we are awed by the beauty, where this mind that usually chatters and talks suddenly is hushed, it's silent. It could be standing alone on a mountaintop, taking a lot of effort, energy, to walk to the top of the mountain, and then standing there and looking out at the colors of a setting sun, and turning around and watching a full moon rising. A moment when the mind is quiet, tranquil, calm. A moment where we are not standing separate from life. These moments 
although they're peaceful and beautiful, if we don't look to the understanding of what is happening, they will simply be just another experience, just another pleasant experience. But when we investigate, look, see what is happening, it can help to inform us. It can help to inform us of the pain of separation, what's happening when we move in contraction, when that moment ends, because it can end very quickly if it's just a, a, a moment of experience. You know, it can end as soon as a mosquito comes along and bites us. No longer are we not standing in that place of separation. But if we look and see what's happening, it can help to deepen wisdom. In these moments, we're standing with no craving, no wanting, not needing some other experience, being at ease with the way things are. We're not looking to the future and what it might bring. We're not caught in the past and what's happened to us. We're not judging this moment or evaluating it in comparison to other moments. There's receptivity in the mind. There's an ease. The same receptivity we can bring to any experience when we're not fighting with the way things are. I'd like to share a teaching from Han Shan Teiching, who was a 15th century Chinese monk. He said, resting at my open window, I gaze out at mountains. A thousand peaks of blue and purple rise above the pines without a thought or care. White clouds come and go, so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed. When we are utterly accepting, so totally relaxed, the mind is in a place of non-clinging, non-identification. And this is what leads to the end of suffering. In just the same way that we learn to open to nature, learning to open to the experience of this mind and body, sitting in presence, sitting with receptivity, 
sitting with relaxation, experiencing, knowing, understanding the pulsations of life. As we move into contraction, separation, looking and seeing, because this too is a part of life. Looking at the winds of life that are blowing through, whether it's anger, aversion, frustration, disappointment, sadness, self-judgment. Looking into the nature of this experience. When we are out in nature, we will find that we also get a heightened awareness. And, you know, this can be similar to what we experience just sitting on retreat as presence becomes strengthened, colors become more vivid, sounds are heard more clearly, the smells become stronger. A part of what happens when we are out in nature, why the senses become heightened, is because our very survival can be dependent upon it. If we are asleep out in nature, if we are not awake, aware, alert, we can be in dangerous situations. You know, this is evident when we look at animals in nature, how their very survival depends on being alert. Ajahn Mun, who is a Thai forest master, was aware of this, aware of how when one is in nature, one needs to be aware, alert, and also how one needs to overcome tendencies in the mind, that it is a place where our habituated mind uh, can, we can be confronted. We can be confronted by fear, fear of the world around us and the danger we might be in. We can be confronted by habits of arrogance, where um, we have to learn the laws of nature. This is really evident, or it was evident to me at a time in my life when I used to climb mountains. And, you know, you can set out to climb a mountain on a beautiful, clear day and begin the journey up to the top of the mountain. And then partway up, conditions can rapidly change. A storm moves in. And if one is arrogant, one might think, I have to get to the top of this mountain and push on. And many lives have been lost in this way. But if one faces life, if one yields to conditions, has that 
receptivity. One can yield to the way things are. So out in nature, one gets confronted by one's own mind. So I'd like to share a teaching from a disciple of Ajahn Man's, um, who he was sent out into the wilds. Uh, the name of the disciple is Tet. And Tet was about 34 years old, and he had been wandering in the wilds for many years. And he had heard many tigers growl in that time. And on this occasion, he was in a hut outside the village when he became stricken with fear. And he says, I sat down to meditate, but my mind wouldn't focus. At the same time, I did not know that the mind was terrified of the tiger. My body sweated so much that the perspiration streamed down. Why all the sweating when it was so cold? I spread the robe and kept covered, but the body was trembling. The mind was too exhausted to meditate. When I was about to recline, the tiger growled again. I was shaking as if I had jungle fever. Only then did I realize that the mind refused to focus out of sheer fright. Immediately I sat up and cajoled my mind to have the courage to face death if it came. And then the mind became calm. At times when hearing the tiger again, my mind simply ignored its roar, like the wind making contact with an object. It's just noise. To the untrained mind, the roar of the tiger will be overwhelming. To the person who has the desire to be free of suffering, they will use it as an opportunity to turn to the Dharma or greater truth. Ajahn Man said that there comes a critical point when strong concentration develops in order to face our fears, and then further insight will arise. He believed that it was good fortune for a monk to hear the growl of a tiger. For the ordinary mind, the response would be fear. For the noble one, it is simply sound. In nature, we learn to face our fear. We learn to face our arrogance. We learn to face our minds. The conditions in our lives can, at times, be fearful. Conditions in our lives will surely reflect back to us something of our own minds. And it's using, learning to use these mind states as a vehicle for awakening in just the same way that Tet used his fear to arouse the energy, the effort, to look deeply, to be not thrown by what was arising, to stand firm in presence, to look, to see, and to understand the way of life, the way of things.
we can use our everyday mind states as the wilderness, the wilderness in which we can explore. In nature, we come to see the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. When we look around at the natural world, we will see life in all its different stages. We will see evidence of death around us. If you've been walking the loop, a common sight is a dead animal on the road, something that's been killed by traffic. It's common to see this. It points to death as being a fact of life. It's unpleasant. And yet it is the way things are. Walking through the woods. We see signs of decay everywhere. Life is constantly transitioning. One time, I was practicing in Burma, in a monastery, a forest monastery. And I was sitting out uh, in the back on a platform. I liked to go back there because other people didn't. And there was a sense of being in more of a wilderness. Sitting on a platform that was just about the size of what I'm sitting on now. I had a mosquito net. It was my sense of safety. It's not very thick. One day I was sitting practicing and I didn't, there was probably a moment where I didn't recognize, that. I, I suspect there was a moment of hearing, but suddenly my eyes popped open. And right in front of me, not very far away, you know, um, less than half the width of this hall, there was a snake. And the snake was just sitting there doing its dance, moving back and forth. And I knew that dance, that that's what a a snake does before it strikes. I was frightened. There was fear. And then as I sat there watching this dance, sitting, seeing, seeing, fear, fear, suddenly out of the corner of my eye I saw a little frog. And that was really what the snake had its eye on. And then in a split second that snake ate the frog, and it was gone. It was the scene, you know, when the mind was really open, vulnerable. It was scene of life and death, and how this is natural. This is what happens. But when we don't understand that, We personalize some of the things that happen in life as being unjust, 
unfair, signs of personal failing. You know, in our lives, and it's a good thing to do, that we can try to take care of ourselves very well. We can give ourselves the best of food, get plenty of sleep, and it can still happen that we get sick. It can still happen that we get horrible diseases and we might die from them. And this is just a part of life. I know for myself it was a huge help, you know, as a teenager, to go out and sit in nature. You know, around me in the world, I saw a world that was living in denial of suffering, that tried to deny, suppress, avoid. And when I went out in the natural world, I saw the cycles of life and death. And it helped me to be more at ease with what I saw to be more at ease in my life as I go through changes, as aging happens, as sickness happens. One day death will happen. We don't yet know how at ease will be then. But we can become more at ease when we pay attention to the truth of life. We see impermanence, these changing cycles of life. Spring is such a time to experience these changes, to see these changes. The daffodils will teach us our first lesson when they come through, and they're just so beautiful in the spring, you know, when it's been so dark and dreary. And suddenly there's these bright yellow flowers, but they don't last long. I find the desert very powerful for the scene of impermanence. The, the desert being an ancient land. And, you know, when you go to the desert, I, I was fascinated to see it, these signs in some of the parks. And time is referred to in millions of years. And yet within the desert, there is evidence of both quick change and slow change. When I was in Bryce Canyon, um, you know, Bryce Canyon, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is so fragile. I mean, you can see the particles of earth that are clinging together. You know, they're tied together. And then you take a step, and the earth just shifts. It moves. A wind blows, and things change. It's so very fragile. And then there's these mountains. And these mountains are, you know, were actually the sea of the ocean at one point. And rapid change happened, and they were thrust up and became a mountain. 
And now slowly, slowly, they are eroding. I find it actually a good um, metaphor for practice where, you know, sometimes in our practice we might experience really rapid change. And sometimes the, the shifts that we experience are really gradual. That they, you know, we can feel at many times as if not much is shifting. And we're just quietly working away. Quietly working with our habits of greed, hatred, and delusion. Out in nature, we see impermanence. And we also see the uncontrollability of life. How there's a force present, an unstoppable force. You know, if you've ever been in a wild ocean, you know of its power. Being in the midst of fierce winds, you can't stop it. These conditions are coming about through other conditions. It's a play of conditions. This was another thing I love to see in the, the desert, the play of conditions. You know, how you can have a, um, a tiny, fragile flower growing out of the midst of a rock wall. And it will be because of just the way the water flows down that rock wall. There being a little pocket And slowly over time, that rock wall gets eroded, the soil gets softer, a seed lands there, gets enough light, and something grows. And it's just this play of conditions. And it's something that is ungovernable. In our lives, we find there is a tapestry of conditions coming together, playing out. Our lives are a great weaving of interrelated conditions. When we pay attention, you know, just even to through the course of a day, the people that come and go in our life, the events that happen begin and end. If we pay attention, we begin to see how we relate to impermanence, how we relate to change, how we relate to the fact that we can't control things despite our best efforts, that life has this uncontrollable aspect to it. We begin to see how we are with loss, with change, we can really let this scene of impermanence, the scene of the way it's a weaving together of interrelated conditions that is very impersonal, insubstantial, we can let it inform us. We can let it help us to see that this is okay, 
This is the way of things. I'm always so touched by the story of the Buddha. The Buddha who had two chief disciples, Sariputta and Magalana, who were said to be like his left and his right hands. You know, they really carried forth his teachings. They were very close to the Buddha. And it happened that they both died within a short period of time. It said that after they had died, and the Buddha sat in an assembly of monks, he looked out at all of the monks and he said, and this is paraphrasing because it's just from memory, he said, O monks, this hall appears empty to me. It's as if the sun and the moon have gone out of the sky. So the Buddha experienced loss. Something that had been important and valuable in his life was now gone. And yet, the Buddha didn't suffer. He knew this was the way of things. This is the way of life. That all conditioned things are subject to impermanence. Nothing is exempt. And he could experience this loss and not be broken by it. Because he deeply understood the way of things. This is a teaching from Ajahn Chah, another Thai forest monk. Conditions all go their own natural way. Whether we laugh or cry at them, they just go their own way. And there is no knowledge or science that can prevent the natural course of things. You can get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, they still finally go their natural way. Eventually, even the dentist has the same problem. Everything falls apart in the end. Through nature, we also become aware of the interconnectedness of all life, how we live within um, and are dependent upon this web of life. I'd like to share a couple of stories. They're kind of heartening stories that come out of the tsunami that happened, the, uh, the big tsunami the event that happened not so long ago in our lives. And I find them heartening in just seeing how, even in looking at this web of interconnectedness, we can often see, well, within our own lives, that there can be people that we're happy support, to support, um, types of beings that we're happy su- to support, and yet this can get challenged. 
So it's the, there's a story that there was this baby hippopotamus that had survived the tsunami and had become separated from its mothers. And baby or hippopotamuses usually live with their mother for four years. So this hippopotamus sought out a surrogate mother and it adopted as its mother a male tortoise who was about a century old. And these two would swim together, eat together, and sleep together. And the hippopotamus followed the tortoise in the same way it would follow its mother. And when somebody would approach the tortoise, hmm, I'm not sure I've got the story right here. (laughs) Anyhow, there was an element of protection amongst the two. And it's said that the tortoise was very happy with being a mother. There was also a story from the tsunami of some working elephants in Thailand that picked up before the tsunami happened, uh, about a quarter or a half hour before the tsunami struck, that there was danger. And so these elephants picked up people with their trunks and carried them to higher ground. Now these animals being aware that we can support each other, we can help each other within a web of interconnectedness. But this interconnectedness is, you know, it goes right through to the core of who we are. And this is very aptly expressed in a teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh says, just as a piece of paper is the fruit, the combination of many elements that can be called non-paper elements, the individual is made of non-individual elements. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in the sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no water. Without water, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, you cannot make paper. You cannot point to one thing that does not have a relationship with this piece of paper. It has been made by all the non-self elements, non-paper elements. And if all these non-paper elements are taken out, it is truly empty, empty of an independent self. Empty in this sense means that the paper is full of everything, the entire cosmos. The presence of this tiny sheet of paper proves the presence of the whole cosmos. In the same way, the individual is made of non-individual elements. We can explore in this body, in this mind, in our practice, to really come to know how deeply life is interconnected, interwoven. As we move through the world, to notice what happens when we act in a way 
where we feel separate. We feel protective of ourselves, wanting for self, referring our experience back to self. And what this feels like. And what it's like when we live in recognition of our interdependence. When we live with respect and care for all beings, all life. Our practice really helps us to see it moment to moment in our experience. When we, truth, when we touch into the truth of anatta, the impersonal, insubstantial nature of experience, we see these conditions coming together, being affected, changing, playing out. We see how impersonal it is. This begins to inform our life, to inform our way of life. When we go back into our our lives, it's not different, but we will have to look to see the connection. Nature can also help us get in touch with the vastness, the boundlessness of mind. Just to lay on the ground and look up at the stars, the mind becomes expansive. Sometimes it's really helpful to have this perspective in our life because we can get so entrenched in my world, my suffering, and to open up to that which is bigger than ourselves, to open up to that which is boundless. I'd like to share something from Stephen Mitchell's book, Parables and Portraits. It's called The Sense of Proportion. There are at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Each galaxy contains at least 100 billion stars. Each star illuminates and an uncounted number of planets, each of which may support inconceivable forms of life. From most points of view, the green earth is smaller than an electron. And all this is happening within your own mind. William Blake says, If the doors of perceptions were cleansed, everything would be seen as it is, infinite. So the world of nature has many lessons for us. Gives us support. It helps us to see impermanence helps us to see the truth of suffering. It helps us to see the insubstantial, impersonal nature of life. Through awareness of what's happening in the external world, 
when we apply this and understand it in our own experience. It helps us to live wisely, to live with a relationship to life that is in accordance with the way things are. And it helps us to understand our experience in a way that frees us. We learn to not stand separate or apart from life. We learn not to identify, grasp, cling at this experience. I'd like to close with the teaching from Ajahn Buddha Dasa. He says, to understand Dhamma sufficiently is the first step, but understanding it is not the end. We now see that that as the the mind begins to let go, to loosen up its attachment, these attachments dissolve away. We experience this until the point where attachment is extinguished. Once attachment is quenched, the final step is to experience that the mind is free, everything is free. The Pali texts use the phrase, throwing back. But the Buddha said that at the end, we throw everything back. This means that we have been thieves all our lives by appropriating the things of nature as I, me, and mine. We have been stupid and suffered for it. Now we have become wise and are able to give things up. At this last step of practice, we realize, oh, it isn't mine. It belongs to nature. We throw everything back to nature and never again steal anything. To learn the secret of Dhamma is to know that we should be attached to nothing whatsoever and then never again to become attached to anything. All is liberated. The case is closed. We are finished. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.